Picture this, if you will. A 22-year-old previously healthy male is brought to the emergency department via ambulance from his college dorm room. He's been feeling sick for the past two days, reports his roommate, who came to the emergency department with him. This morning, he said he had fever, chills, and a bad headache. He actually seemed pretty out of it all day. Then in the afternoon, he collapsed on the couch. I couldn't wake him up, so I got scared and I called the ambulance. The ambulance reports a temperature of 103.4 Fahrenheit, heart rate of 126 per minute, respiratory rate of 22 breaths per minute, and a blood pressure of 80 over 60 millimeters mercury. On exam, the patient is responsive only to painful stimuli. By your best assessment, he has no obviously focal neurologic signs, but when you raise his head up to listen to his lungs, he groans and his legs involuntarily flex. You notice blood dripping from the gurney and realize that the venipuncture side from the paramedic's IV is still bleeding. And then you notice the tiny purple spots scattered all over his body. What disease is most likely responsible for your patient's acute illness? And what life-threatening complication is indicated by the purple spots? And welcome to Audiobricks. I'm Arjun Iyer, bringing topics in hematology from our bricks to your ears. After completing this brick, you'll be able to 1. Define disseminated intravascular coagulation, better known as DIC. 2. Describe the clinical presentation of DIC. 3. Explain the pathophysiology of DIC. 4. Explain how DIC is diagnosed. And 5. Outline the treatment of DIC. Part 1. What is disseminated intravascular coagulation? Disseminated intravascular coagulation, or DIC, is what you call a thrombohemorrhagic disorder. What's a thrombohemorrhagic disorder, you might ask? It's a disorder that combines both clotting and bleeding. DIC is a systemic disorder typically seen in very sick patients, and it's important to remember that it's not a primary disorder. Rather, it's a secondary manifestation of another critical illness. So, if you have a patient with DIC, the best way to stop it is by identifying and treating the underlying cause. DIC is one of a cluster of disorders known as thrombotic microangiopathies, which is a family of disorders that includes thrombotic thrombocytopenia purpura, or TTP, and hemolytic uremic syndrome, or HUS. These disorders cause clot formation in tiny blood vessels, which can either partially or completely occlude them. The components used to form a clot get used up creating thrombi in the wrong places, and leaving an insufficient quantity to prevent bleeding where they're required. Finally, the partial occlusion of tiny blood vessels causes red blood cells to tear as they try to squeeze through the narrow channels, leading to hemolytic anemia. Part 2. How do patients with disseminated intravascular coagulation present? Because DIC has so many causes, the clinical presentation varies quite a bit depending on the stimulus. The onset may be acute, for example, if the stimulation is something like sepsis, but it can also be more insidious, like if the stimulus is a chronic disease like cancer. Sometimes the clinical picture is dominated by bleeding. In others, extensive clotting causes the most important clinical consequences. DIC is often a multi-organ system disease, with the potential to affect the skin, lungs, kidneys, liver, cardiovascular system, and nervous system. Cutaneous findings are usually quite recognizable. The patient may show signs of bleeding from intravenous or other lines, and the skin may show petechiae, which are purple, non-blanching spots caused by microvascular hemorrhage. Pulmonary hemorrhage can lead to hemoptysis and respiratory failure, 
while pulmonary microthrombi are thought to contribute to the development of acute respiratory distress syndrome. Renal microthrombi are particularly common and either cause or exacerbate acute kidney injury in over a quarter of patients with DIC. The neurologic manifestations are extremely diverse and include coma, seizures, and focal symptoms depending on whether hemorrhage or microthrombosis is involved. Alright, time to review, gang. What is the most common skin manifestation of disseminated intravascular coagulation? The most common cutaneous manifestation is petechiae, or the formation of non-blanching purple spots. Part 3. What is the pathophysiology of disseminated intravascular coagulation? Activation of the coagulation cascade may seem like a no-brainer. I mean, where there's a hole, you just plug it up. Easy. But such a wide range of vessel microtrauma occurs on such a regular basis that the body's system of hemostasis needs to be held in constant balance of controlled coagulation followed by fibrinolysis. And it's this disruption of the controlled process that leads to disseminated intravascular coagulation. Now, the causes of DIC can be broken down into two categories that I like to call the dumpers and the rippers. And no, I would not recommend you refer to them as such when you get asked any clinical rotations. <laughs> dumpers are things that dump procoagulants into the blood, exaggerating the tendency to form clots. And rippers are things that diffusely damage the endothelium, activating the coagulation cascade. Now, let's go over some notable dumpers. <laughs> First, DIC is a known complication of the peripartum period, as the already hypercoagulable state of pregnancy is exacerbated when excessive tissue factor is released into the maternal bloodstream from things like the fetus or placenta. And this most commonly occurs alongside complications of the peripartum, like placental abruption, postpartum hemorrhage, amniotic fluid embolism, and HELP syndrome. Certain cancers lead to DIC by releasing procoagulants into the bloodstream. And this is most common in acute promyelocytic leukemia and adenocarcinomas, especially mucinous ones like pancreatic adenocarcinoma. Finally, the venom from the crotalid, or rattlesnake family, works primarily by overactivation of the coagulation pathway. Now onto the rippers, which are some of the more common causes of DIC. First and foremost is sepsis, especially from major gram-negative toxin-producing bacterial infections. Next is major trauma, including major trauma from thermal burns. And finally, you have the vasculitides, like vasculitis caused by systemic lupus erythematosus. You can remember the most common causes of DIC with the mnemonic MOST, malignancy, obstetric complications, sepsis, and trauma. So, you may be asking yourself, how do these events lead to dysregulated coagulation throughout the body? In the case of the dumpers, like we mentioned, the massive release of procoagulants inappropriately and diffusely activates the coagulation cascade. Vessel wall injury, in the case of the rippers, releases tumor necrosis factor, causing the endothelial cells in turn to release tissue factor. And if you remember your coagulation cascade, you'll recognize this as the stimulus for the extrinsic pathway of the coagulation cascade. In both cases, though, both the dumpers and the rippers, the hyperactivated coagulation cascade generates excessive amounts of unnecessary fibrin in vessels all over the body, lodging itself in small vessels and combining with platelets to form thrombi. So, DIC can be considered a secondary form of thrombotic microangiopathy, a coagulation disorder that causes occlusion of the microvasculature, secondary to another medical condition.
These thrombi can reduce regional blood flow, causing tissue ischemia or even necrosis. Additionally, they also damage passing red blood cells, leading to hemolytic anemia as the cells begin to rupture from the sheer stress of squeezing through the narrowed microvasculature. The mechanism that can cause this is what's referred to as microangiopathic hemolytic anemia, or MAHA, and the reason that this is important is that all microangiopathic hemolytic anemias are characterized by a specific finding on the peripheral blood smear, the presence of schistocytes. We'll talk more about those later. Now, the problem of bleeding arises when all the rampant clotting in DIC consumes most of the available platelets and coagulation factors. This leaves an insufficient quantity to ensure hemostasis from the microtrauma experienced moment to moment. Additionally, since coagulation is always balanced by fibrinolysis, the fibrin degradation products that are produced will themselves inhibit clotting and aggravate the bleeding problem. In this way, DIC can manifest with both systemic microthrombi and hemorrhage at the same time. Alright, time for a knowledge check. What initiates disseminated intravascular coagulation? Activation of the coagulation cascade, either by excessive release of procoagulants or diffuse endothelial damage, is what initiates DIC. Now let's talk histopathology for a second. I know, it's not quite the same without microscopy slides in front of me, but I'll do my best. On a peripheral blood smear, you're almost certain to see a reduced number of platelets, or thrombocytopenia. More specific to DIC, however, are the deformed cells known as schistocytes, though it should be mentioned that schistocytes can be seen in any form of thrombotic microangiopathy, not just DIC. Schistocytes form because red blood cells can't easily flex as they try to squeeze through the partially thrombosed microvasculature past sharp strands of fibrin that sort of slice them up like razor wire. Oftentimes, red blood cells are destroyed completely, which is the mechanism for hemolytic anemia in a thrombotic microangiopathy. If a red blood cell gets sliced in two, but manages to reseal itself, however, now that's when you get a schistocyte. On a slide, schistocytes appear smaller than normal red blood cells, and are kind of angular rather than round, like they've been shredded, which of course they have. Now time for a quick review, guys. Why do schistocytes appear in disseminated intravascular coagulation? Because they're the irregular fragments that form when red blood cells get shredded up, trying to pass through the fibrin filaments in the partially thrombosed microcirculation. Part 4. How do we diagnose disseminated intravascular coagulation? To make the diagnosis of DIC, a careful history and physical are essential to both identify the characteristic signs and symptoms and establish the root cause. And this may be more difficult than it sounds, since the signs and symptoms of DIC can vary quite a bit and often overlap with the underlying critical illness. During your workup, it's crucial to rule out other causes of thrombotic microangiopathy, like thrombotic thrombocytopenia purpura, hemolytic uremic syndrome, drug-induced thrombotic microangiopathy, and other hereditary disorders. Because while the treatment of DIC is mostly supportive, many other thrombotic microangiopathies have more specific and effective treatments. Laboratory evaluation clinches the diagnosis of DIC and distinguishes it from other thrombotic microangiopathies. The key studies, therefore, are the complete blood count, peripheral blood smear, and an extended coagulation panel, which I'll go over in more detail. The complete blood count will reveal thrombocytopenia, as well as anemia that can be further characterized as hemolytic by the elevated unconjugated bilirubin on the complete metabolic panel. 
Note that the degree of anemia is usually milder in DIC than in other forms of thrombotic microangiopathy. The peripheral smear, as we've mentioned a couple times now, will reveal characteristic schistocytes, which narrows down your differential a lot by alerting you to the fact that some sort of thrombotic microangiopathy is taking place. The number of schistocytes is also important in tracking disease severity, and clinicians often order daily blood smears on patients with DIC to see if the number of schistocytes is trending up or down. Now, once you have a peripheral blood smear with schistocytes, however, your main job is to distinguish DIC from other more specifically treatable types of thrombotic microangiopathy. And that's where the coagulation studies come in. Because the main problem in DIC is rampant, uncontrolled fibrin production and clot formation, the coagulation factors will eventually be depleted. So the prothrombin time, international normalized ratio, activated partial thromboplastin time, and thrombin time otherwise known as PT, INR, PTT, and TT, are all prolonged. This distinguishes DIC from other forms of thrombotic microangiopathy, whose pathophysiology is mostly caused by platelet-driven thrombosis. Additional coagulation studies that are frequently helpful are fibrinogen and D-dimer levels, though both of these have issues with diagnostic accuracy. Fibrinogen, the precursor to fibrin in clots, is typically decreased, they have to remember that in many inflammatory states that lead to DIC, like sepsis, you'll also tend to see elevated fibrinogen levels, potentially meaning that the end result is a fibrinogen in the normal range. D-dimer is a fibrin breakdown product, and since both coagulation and fibrinolysis increase, the D-dimer will almost always be elevated in DIC. However, because this test is super sensitive, it tends to be elevated even in conditions of minor clot formation. In other words, a low fibrinogen level is fairly specific for DIC, but insensitive, since you'll get a lot of false negatives if the DIC is caused by an inflammatory condition. A high D-dimer, on the other hand, is highly sensitive for DIC, but nonspecific, given the high rate of false positives. You're better off using a normal D-dimer to rule out DIC. Part 5. How do we treat disseminated intravascular coagulation? Like I mentioned, the first goal of managing DIC is to treat the underlying condition. But in patients who have a predominance of hemorrhagic features, or who need to undergo surgery, you may need to directly transfuse blood products to replace the coagulation factors in blood cells that are being actively depleted. Fresh frozen plasma contains all plasma clotting factors, and is transfused when a patient has an abnormal PT or PTT values. Cryoprecipitate is a specific concentrate of certain plasma components. Most relevant to DIC, however, it contains high concentrations of fibrinogen, but lower concentrations of many of the other clotting factors. Therefore, it's mainly used when the concentrations of fibrinogen are decreased to a greater extent than abnormalities in other coagulation parameters. And finally, platelets and packed red blood cells are used to correct thrombocytopenia and anemia, respectively. Now to be clear, this doesn't stop DIC from taking place. It simply provides additional substrates for the body to prevent bleeding. Unfortunately, the body's tendency to deplete clotting factors, platelets, and red blood cells will still persist, so transfusing blood products is only a supportive measure. More concerningly, providing additional substrate for clot formation will increase the thrombotic complications of DIC. Therefore, the decision to transfuse blood products is always a balancing act where you have to consider... Do I need to prevent bleeding badly enough right now to risk more thrombosis? In fact, in the event that thrombotic complications predominate, 
anticoagulation may be required. In a patient with DIC, always use a heparin drip rather than low molecular weight heparin or a NOAC because if a patient starts to bleed, you want to be able to turn that drip off quickly. And that's a wrap. Let's see how well you remember disseminated intravascular coagulation, or DIC. First, can you define disseminated intravascular coagulation? DIC is a form of secondary thrombotic microangiopathy, a disorder of both widespread thrombosis and bleeding. It's mainly caused by a wide range of critical illnesses that either dump large quantities of procoagulants into the bloodstream or rip up the vascular endothelium, initiating the coagulation cascade. Second, can you describe the clinical presentation of DIC? DIC's most characteristic findings are the cutaneous findings of petechiae of the skin or persistent bleeding from IV lines, but it can also cause a wide range of thrombotic and hemorrhagic complications in almost any organ system, commonly acute kidney injury, pulmonary hemorrhage and ARDS, and cerebral microthrombosis or hemorrhage. Third, what are some of the characteristic laboratory findings in DIC? And how do you distinguish DIC from other forms of thrombotic microangiopathy? DIC, like other thrombotic microangiopathies, causes the formation of schistocytes in the blood and is often associated with thrombocytopenia and hemolytic anemia. But unlike other forms of thrombotic microangiopathy, coagulation studies like PT, INR, and PTT will be markedly abnormal. Finally, can you outline the treatment of DIC? In patients with DIC, you need to balance the risk of thrombosis with the risk of bleeding, administering plasma and other blood products to correct or prevent bleeding, administering IV heparin to treat thrombotic complications, and continuously monitoring the patient to ensure that the treatment of one problem doesn't exacerbate the other. Now, armed with your newfound knowledge, let's get back to that patient from the intro. A 22-year-old male presents to the emergency department with headache, altered level of consciousness, fever, and tachycardia. He exhibits signs of nuchal rigidity, and petechiae are found upon examination of his skin. What disease is most likely responsible for your patient's acute illness, and what life-threatening complication is indicated by the purple spots? The patient's fever and tachycardia indicate that he's septic, but the presence of petechiae and the bleeding from the IV site also indicates some sort of a bleeding disorder. So in addition to working the patient up for possible causes of sepsis, you also order an extended coagulation panel. Knowing that sepsis can cause diffuse endothelial damage, you already suspect disseminated intravascular coagulation. Furthermore, you suspect that the source of the infection may be meningitis, given the patient's headache and altered mental status. Unfortunately, you realize that could also be caused by an intracranial hemorrhage. You send the patient for a CT of the head, which is fortunately negative for any bleed. The patient's labs return, revealing not only anemia, thrombocytopenia, and schistocytes on the peripheral smear, but also a prolonged PT and PTT. With the diagnosis of DIC confirmed, you order a transfusion of packed red cells, platelets, and FFP. The patient doesn't have life-threatening bleeding, 
but you need to perform a lumbar puncture, and causing epidural bleeding is the last thing you need. The cloudy fluid that emerges from the patient's spinal column tells you even before you see the lab results that the patient's CSF is grossly purulent, and you admit the patient to the intensive care unit for the treatment of meningitis resulting in DIC. Hopefully, you think, the transfused blood products will stabilize the patient's hemostasis while the antibiotics are taking effect. And that's our show. If you like what you heard, make sure to like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Remember, your feedback helps us improve. You can enjoy the full BRICS experience online at www.usmle-rx.com, complete with illustrations, questions, flashcards, and active learning. So go check that out if you haven't already. Until next time, friends. 